Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to be able to be here this morning. I do count it a, uh, a honor to be able to speak to you today, and I trust that our, uh, our time together this morning will be a blessing. We don't have much time together, and I want to really get down to what we're talking about this morning, so I'm not going to say much about uh, uh, us and my family uh, by way of introduction, uh, because we have had a few things said this morning, but I do want to say uh, if you are still looking for a church and uh, we would encourage you to come down and visit us. We're about a mile down the road, across from A&W, Caddy Corner on 17th there. It's the building uh, with the blue roof, and that's Emmanuel Baptist Church. I've been there for two and a half years now, and I thank the Lord for the privilege of being able to preach. I love preaching the Word of God. The best thing anybody can do who's been called into ministry is to be able to preach the Word of God. And God has given it to us in order to straighten out the darkness of our thinking and the darkness of our mind. If we didn't have the Word of God, we wouldn't know what God or who God is. We wouldn't know what God says, and we wouldn't know what, how God has provided for us a way to be able to spend eternity with Him in heaven through His Son, Jesus Christ. This morning, I've been given the opportunity to be able to speak on when Jesus said, I am. And John chapter 8 and verse 12 is where we find what Jesus says, so let's go there. And this morning we're going to be looking at several passages of Scripture, so if you've got your Bible, loosen it up. Uh, if, you, if it's on your phone, open it up, find it, because we're going to be hitting several, several passages, and I want you to be able to see these this morning. Okay, John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus said, or John writes, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And this morning we're going to look at that. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you'll bless with understanding how Jesus is the light of the world. Father, I pray that you would keep our hearts and minds from being distracted easily by other things this morning. For Lord, the devil would not want us to know the truth about Jesus. The devil would not want us to know the truth about being delivered from the darkness of our sin. The devil would not want us to know of the light of the world, Jesus. And so I pray this morning that you would help us in keeping our minds and our hearts focused upon the Word of God and minister to our needs this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever woke up in a dark room and wondered where you were? I remember when I was a kid, about 13 years old, well, a little bit older, I guess it was about 15, I was visiting my grandmother, and downstairs in the basement was where I was sleeping. Now, that's not a big deal, sleeping in the basement, because normally when the lights are on, you can see where you are, and you can find your way pretty easily. But I was laying there at night, and all of a sudden, I woke up in the middle of the night after a very startling dream. Now, the fact of the matter is, at this point in my life, I wasn't really doing everything right for God. I was kind of doing some of my own things that I wanted to do. And when I woke up from this dream, I was scared to death. I could not see anything. It was absolutely black in that room. 
When I woke up from this dream, the dream I had was I was riding on a bus because that, that, that following day I was going to be going on a teen activity. We were going to go skiing. I was riding on the bus, and as I was riding on the bus, I was sitting towards the front of it, right where the doors are. And as we came through an intersection, I looked to my right, and here came this VW Beetle. It was blue in color. And it came flying through the intersection and ran into the, uh, the, the side of the bus right where I was sitting. And that's when I woke up. And I was scared to death because I wondered, what happened? Have I died? Where am I? I can't see anything. There's no light. What's happened to me? Well, as I settled down in trying to figure out where I was, I began to see a little bit of a glimmer of a light to my left. And then I began to remember where I was. I was sleeping in my grandmother's basement. The set of stairs from upstairs came right by the bed where I was sleeping. I was up against that set of stairs, and they were blocking the light that was coming in from the doorway. So then when I scooted out of bed and worked my way around, I saw the light of the door, and then I was relieved that, yeah, I'm not in the eternal darkness of hell. I've not been punished for my, my sin. I, I, I'm still here. I'm still alive. There was hope because I saw the light. Well, this morning as we see this statement by Jesus... He shines as a light into the darkness of man's thinking. He shines into the light of a darkness of a heart that is burdened by the guilt of sin and shows that he is the answer to that. And so this morning, let's look at Jesus' statement here. I am the light of the world. Now, what's going on in this passage of Scripture? Well, to quickly set the stage on this, we're going to have to do a little bit of searching. So in your Bibles, turn back to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. And here we find that Jesus is in his earthly ministry. This is towards the end of the time frame in which Jesus is, has been walking upon the face of the earth. And so he's coming close to the time in which he is going to go to the cross. It's probably in the second to the second and a half part of the years of three years of his ministry. And in John chapter 7, verse 1, it says this, And after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, but he did not walk in Judea. So he went back to his home country. Why? Because the Jews wanted to kill him. He was somebody that was not wanted for the Jewish leaders. They didn't want him in Jerusalem teaching. Now verse 2. Verse 2 says, Now the Jewish feast of tabernacles was at hand. And this is where we find what happens in John chapter 8. For Jesus finds out about the Jewish feast of tabernacles. And we find that in verse 14, it says, Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went into the temple and he taught. And this begins the narrative that runs into John chapter 8 and into John chapter 10, in which Jesus is in the temple during the time of the feast of the tabernacles. Now, what about the Feast of the Tabernacles? Well, there are a couple things, several things that are true about the Feast of the Tabernacles that we need to understand this morning in order to understand what Jesus did and said here. First of all, there are the elements of this feast. 
This feast was once called the Feast of Ingathering. Why? Because there was, God had commanded the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 16 that once the, the harvest is done, then you are to gather it in, and after you've gathered it in, then I want you to come to Jerusalem with an offering from that harvest. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a time of great rejoicing. God commanded the children of Israel, when you come to this feast, come with joy and thanksgiving and rejoicing over what I have provided for you. It was also a time in which we find that God said to the children of Israel, because it is a time of rejoicing, when you come, I want your men to come as one of the three feasts during the year to Jerusalem specifically. So in Genesis, or Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16, the Bible says that God told Israel, your men are to come to Jerusalem and here offer a sacrifice at the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast was so popular, this feast was so joyful, that eventually it became known as the feast. And in fact, in John's narrative, you find that what, what happens with Jesus that John talks about, that when Jesus came up to the feast. Verse 14, look at it again. Now, about the middle of the feast. So this is kind of the feast that for Israel was the center point of the, it ended up the year, it was the highlight of all of the feasts. Now, what happened at the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, the Feast of Tabernacles is also known as the Feast of Booths. And God commanded the children of Israel in Leviticus chapter 24, or chapter 23, let's go over there, Leviticus 23. He told them, I want you to make a tabernacle or a booth and live in this thing. Leviticus 23, look at verse 42. Speaking of the Feast of Tabernacles, he said, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generation may know that I have made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So God told them that they were to make these booths. And even to this day, there is this temporary structure that is made out of, out of branches of trees and then branches spread across the top. And then the Jews spend a week living in this and eating in it and celebrating in it. Feast of booths. Why did God tell him to make a booth? Well, because in making of these booths, he was teaching them three things, that God is the God who is providing. Remember when they came up to Jerusalem and then they, they scattered out throughout the city and they made these booths and they lived in these booths, then they went to the temple with an offering that came from the harvest. And as they came with this offering of the harvest into the temple, they came with rejoicing because God had once again provided a plenteous harvest so that the coming year were not starving to death. It was also a reminder that not only did God provide, but as God provided the current Jews coming to the temple, God provided for his people in the wilderness. And again and again we see in the Old Testament how God provided for Israel as they wandered to the land of Canaan. Secondly, it talk of, talked of God abiding. That is God's promise to dwell among his people. As they dwelt in their booths, how did God dwell among Israel as they were wandering in the wilderness? Well, did he not dwell within a tabernacle? 
And when it was time to move, they packed up the tabernacle, they packed up their tents, and then they followed uh, the pillar of fire by day, or a cloud by day, and the pillar of fire by night. And wherever it stopped, they set up the tabernacle, and there God dwelt, and the rest of the camp set up around it. So it gave the promise of God abiding. And this Feast of Tabernacles, as they came, the Israelites were rejoicing that God was abiding among his people because at the temple was God's promise of his presence. Not only did it teach them about God providing and God abiding, but also God presiding. In other words, there's a hope from this this, uh, Feast of Tabernacles that one day there would be Gentiles that would join in on this feast. Go to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. And in Zechariah chapter 14, look at verse 16. This is speaking of the millennial kingdom. When King Jesus, the Messiah, is reigning. And what happens in the millennial kingdom? It says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations that came up against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, that's Jesus, the Lord of hosts, that's Jesus, to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. See, as the Jews gathered for the Feast of Tabernacles, and as they will soon do so here later in October, there is that anticipation that what God is going to do, He's going to be presiding over uh, the affairs of mankind as King. So there's that anticipation that one day Messiah the King will reign. Not only were they told to dwell in booths, but there are two interesting things that happened with this Feast of Tabernacles. And these two things lead directly to what Jesus says in John chapter 8 and verse 12. The first thing was what was called the water libation. Now what's that? Well, in the morning of the feast, every single day, there was a certain uh, procession that took place. As the trumpet was sounded in the temple compound, the high priest grabbed a golden pitcher and headed for the water gate, which was on the south side of the temple. As he went through that water gate, he went down the spine of what is now known as Mount Moriah, through the old city of David towards a pool called the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam was the water source for Jerusalem. It was a pool that was fed by a spring. And that priest, as he went down, was followed by a procession of pilgrims and priests blowing upon the ram's horn and and praising God as they went down to this water source. And then as the priest took that pitcher and by that source of water dipped it into the water, he recited Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3, which says that with joy you will draw from the well of salvation. Then as he picked that pitcher up, he turned and started going back up, the, uh, up Mount Moriah, back through the water gate, back into the Temple Mount, the trumpets sounding, the people rejoicing, because here was the provision of life that was coming from living water that was not stagnant water, that was water that was moving, it was water that provided life for Israel, it was within the confines of the city of Jerusalem, and God had provided for them what they needed. In some ways, that water represented the joy that God had provided the rain for the harvest that they had had that year. And the anticipation that in the coming year, God would provide that water again. 
But ultimately what it pictured was as they took that water and and the priest walked over to the altar, he climbed up the ramp of the altar, turned to his left, and at the southwest corner of the altar, he took that water and poured it into a silver pitcher. At the same time, there was another silver pitcher in which was poured wine. And then together, the two of them were poured out upon the altar. And as it was poured out on the altar, the priest recited from Psalm 118, and the, verse 25, and the people reiterated it, which essentially says, save us, O God, give us salvation. And then the verse goes on and says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, whom we have blessed in his house. And then everything stopped, became absolutely still. Everyone stood and then bowed their head in contemplation as they meditated upon the fact that this act of pouring out of water was symbolic of what God promised to Israel in Isaiah 44 and verse 3. Go there if you would please, Isaiah 44 and verse 3. Isaiah 44 and verse 3 says, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty, and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants, and my blessing on your offspring. Who's God talking to? The Jews. And what he is promising to the Jewish people here is that one day he would pour his spirit out upon him like one pours water upon a thirsty person. And here the Jews, as they see this water poured out upon the altar, are reminded of what God promised to Israel, that to the one who is thirsty, I will give living water which will satisfy his soul. And as the Jews stood quietly, contemplating what God had said, marveling in the symbolism of what was just done, reveling in the fact that God had promised to send the refreshment to the thirsty soul. Go to John chapter 7. And in John chapter 7, look at verse 37. John chapter 7 Verse 37 says this, on the last day, the great day of the feast, all right, what about the last day? Well, on the last day, what happened was at the libation of water, the priest repeated seven times what they said at the altar previously. Previously, they only said it once. And as they said it, they were marching around the altar once. But on this particular day, because it was the day of the great Hosanna, the day of great praise, they did this seven times. And after they did this seven times, the people once again descended into silence. With their heads bowed and in contemplation, notice what Jesus does. Verse 7, it says, or 37, it says that Jesus stood and cried out. Now imagine the scene, if you would, please. 
You have a crowd of people in the temple compound, which you know, would be much vaster and bigger than what we are in here. But the crowd of people standing there at the altar with their heads bowed in contemplation of what God has done, and all of a sudden Jesus stands up and he cries out. Do you not think that when Jesus makes this statement, it startled everybody? Well, sure. He got their attention. And what does he cry out? He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's tying himself immediately to what God had promised to Israel, that it's not in the water being poured out on the altar. It's not in the altar. It's not in the sacrifices being done on the altar. It is in the person of Jesus Christ that a thirsty soul finds the living water. John says that Jesus spoke this specifically of the Holy Spirit. See, the only way one can get the Holy Spirit is through salvation in Jesus Christ. And then Jesus gives his spirit, his spirit of life to that one who does not have life. But that's part of what's going on here. What else is happening in this passage? Well, going with the Feast of Tabernacles is called the Temple Illumination. And in the Temple Illumination, every night a certain event happened. There was either one or four massive lamps in the court of women. This is the same court in which we find Jesus making this proclamation about him being the water of life. But every night these lamps were filled up. They held enough oil to be able to burn through the night. And when they were lit, there was such light given from these lamps that the sages said that it lit up everywhere in Jerusalem. Now think about it, if you're coming up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem being on a hill in the Judean uh, landscape, there we go, in the Judean countryside at this time, they did not have streetlights. So it would have been pitch black, except for the feeble light coming out from the lamps in in the houses. And here on the hill would have been a blazing sight of the temple, lit up by these massive lamps. And what did they do? While these lamps were lit, you had men uh, rejoicing and praising God. You had instruments playing and people singing. You had people surrounding on a balcony looking down at what was happening. And they spent the whole night praising God for being who he is. Now, why did they do this? Well, this spectacle was because the Jewish people believed that what God had done was to provide them to be a light to the Gentiles. In fact, in Acts chapter 13, verse 47, we find that Paul says that what he demonstrates or is doing now is because of the training and belief that he has that God had chosen the Jews to be a light to the Gentiles. You know what? It's a good thing God did. Because if he had not chosen the Jews to be a light to the Gentiles, we would not have Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 9, verse 5, Paul says that Jesus is of the fathers, that he is the culmination of all that God did through Israel so that Jesus could come. 
But Israel had a belief that they were being the, the light to the Gentiles. When the temple was lit up, who was being magnified? The God who dwelt there. Who was being proclaimed when the temple was lit up? That the God of Israel is the light to the dark Gentiles who know nothing about him. Look to that light and you'll find out who he is. And guess what? This aspect of the Feast of the Tabernacles became known as the light of the world. And there were two things that were firmly believed by the Jews as they participated in this light of the world. The first was that this demonstrated the Shekinah glory of God. What's the Shekinah glory? The Shekinah glory is God's presence. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 40 through 7-4, we, we don't have time to read it, but you can uh, park it in your mind. Solomon is dedicating the temple. And as he's dedicating the temple, he prays and asks God to come and dwell within the temple. So Solomon goes through a whole list of things that he says, okay, Lord, if if our people do this, then please forgive them of them and accept them. Be the God who will be gracious to them. And then as he finishes his prayer, the Bible says that as Solomon finished his prayer, that fire came down from heaven, consumed the sacrifice that was upon the altar, and then the glory of God filled the temple so that nobody could go into the temple for a number of days. Now, why was there this Shekinah glory that appeared? Because it was the presence of God. And the Jews believed that they, in the lighting ceremony here, were demonstrating to the world, through the light of the world, that the presence of God is here. This is where God dwells, that God wants to dwell among man. God wants man to know him. He wants to dwell with them. And that had been the consistent case with God and Israel since their formation. But it demonstrated the Shekinah glory. It demonstrated the belief that he being the Shekinah glory is the Jehovah God of Israel, the creator God who delivers. And Israel had that firm belief that this is who the God, the Shekinah glory, the presence is. Why did they believe that? Well, think about Israel's history. Israel was introduced to God in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in which it says, in the beginning, God. God doesn't give any explanation of himself other than the fact that in the beginning, he says, I existed. When things came into existence, I existed. I'm God. I've always existed. And as he explains what he did in creation, Israel believed that here is creator God dwelling among us. He's the very God, the God of Israel. But he's also the God who delivered. Because Israel believed and knew that God delivered. Think about their existence. How they came into being. Israel was a a nation that was under servitude to Egypt. And what did God do to deliver them? Ten plagues upon the Egyptians. They finally let them go. God takes Israel out of Egypt, brings them up against the Red Sea. An expanse of water which was impossible to walk across. And the Egyptians are are coming in on them. 
And what did God do? God parted the waters of the Red Sea, so the Bible says that on each side as they walked across, the waters were towering as a wall. The Egyptians followed the Israelites into it, and what did God do? He started popping the, the wheels off the chariots, he started making things muddy, and then he closed the waters upon the Egyptians, and the Israelites saw their bodies floating on the shore. God delivered As they went through the wilderness, God split the rock and provided water. God provided manna consistently until the day they went into the land of Canaan. God provided quail for them to eat. Every single thing that the children of Israel needed, we find God was the one who was providing for them. In fact, their clothes didn't wear out for 40 years. Their shoes did not wear out. Israel believed the Shekinah glory is the God who is the God who created, who is deliverer. They also believed that these lights represented a great light. And the great light is the one who is promised in Isaiah 42 and verse 6 as being a light to the Gentiles. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, he is described as a light that comes out of Galilee of the Gentiles. That's astounding. Because Isaiah wrote those words some 600 years before Jesus came. He wrote those words some four to 500 years before Galilee, as a northern territory of Israel, was in the possession of a foreign nation. And he says, out of Galilee of the Gentiles will come a light that will be a light to those that sit in darkness. There was the hope that God would send this great light. And this great light would be the one that would deliver his people from their sin. This great light would be the one that would provide salvation for them by what he would personally do. And so when they came to the Feast of the Tabernacle and the great illumination of the temple, there was this hope for the great light. Now all that in the context we find. That in John chapter 7, after Jesus stood up and proclaimed, I I am he that gives living water. If you thirst, come to me, and I will satisfy you. And in John chapter 8, and in verse 2, we find this written. Now early in the morning, he came again to the temple. When? After the great day of the feast, the seventh day of the feast. So this is the eighth day. What's unique about the eighth day of the feast? It was a Sabbath. It was a day of rest. There's no work going on. Why? Because God said on this particular day, you are to rest and you are to reflect on what you have just rejoiced over the last seven days. Now, what had Israel just been told by Jesus the previous day? That the fulfillment of Isaiah 43 is he himself. That he is the water of life. That he is the one who will satisfy the thirsting soul. The next day, Jesus appears in the temple, and in verse 12, he says this of John chapter 8. Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You realize what Jesus said? What were the Jews celebrating by the light of the world? That they are the messengers 
through whom God is going to send a salvation that will rescue the Gentiles. But not only that, that they were the ones who knew of the Shekinah presence, who were in the Shekinah presence, who had God dwelling with them, the great I am. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses was asked, or Moses asked God, whom do I say will send me? God said to him, tell him I am. And here Israel is, is, is recognizing the great I am is the one who dwells among us, this incomparable God. And Jesus stands up and he says, I am the Shekinah glory. You might say, well, that's a pretty bold claim. Well, you know, John makes the same claim for him. He says in John chapter 1 and verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld what? We beheld the glory of God in Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. Why? Because he not only claims that he is the I am, he is the I am. You know what our text this morning tells us that? Look at John chapter 8 and verse 12 again. Verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light. But in reality, the text here says, I, I am the light. And this is a construction that Jesus uses several times when he identifies himself as being the eternal creator, great God, Jehovah of Israel. In fact, drop down in, verse, in, in chapter 8 down to verse 58. And in verse 58, Jesus said to them, the, the Jews, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, and what's the next two words? I am. But in the text, it is, before Abraham was, I, comma, I am. See, Jesus claims God. That he is God. He is the God of Israel. He is the I am. He is the creator. He is the deliverer of his people. You read through John chapter 1 and the verses down through 14, you cannot miss the fact that the Bible says of Jesus Christ that he is God who created by his word. For in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the, and the Word uh, dwelt with God. He, God, or Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything, not one thing was made without Jesus, John says. In other words, you flip that around, there's nothing that exists today that did not come into being except for the fact that Jesus created it. See, Jesus is not just saying I'm a great man. Jesus is not just saying I'm a good person. Jesus is not just saying I'm a fantastic prophet that God has sent to earth. Jesus is proclaiming that he is God and that he is the God who created and loves his creation and wants to deliver his creation from sin. Go over to John chapter 12, and we wrap up with this. John chapter 12. And we find that Jesus, in proclaiming that he's the light of the world, proclaims that he is a merciful God. 
Why? Because in John chapter 8, before he makes this proclamation, there's a woman caught in adultery, and she is condemned. She's cowering because she knows she's guilty. And what does God do? Jesus do. He forgives her of her sin. John chapter 12, look at verse 44. Then Jesus cried and said, He who believes in me believes not in him who sent me, and he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me shall not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my word and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the God who created and delivers his creation. And Jesus not only stands and says, I'm the living water that can give life, but he offers the forgiveness of sin and the deliverance from darkness because he is the God who delivers. I'm the light of the world, the Shekinah glory, the great God, the I am, the one who satisfies the thirsting soul. The King of kings, the God of God, the Lord of lords, who will reign forever in eternity. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we've taken a quick look and a glimpse at what your word teaches us, that it would become the basis for our meditation today. Father, we would not think of this as just being an exercise that we've had to go through and then set it aside. But rather, Lord, I pray that you would burn upon our hearts these truths this morning. Jesus is the light of the world because he is creator God who delivers his creation. And Father, I pray that for the, the heart that may still be in darkness... For it is possible that the light of the glorious gospel of Christ would shine upon them and they would be delivered from the darkness of sin, be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the light of Jesus Christ, become a son of light. Father, I pray that the meditation of our heart would be upon Jesus who is the almighty God who became man in order to deliver sinful man from his sin. He, as the Almighty God, in delivering us from sin, delivers us from the habits of sin, changes, transforms our lives. Father, in response of what we realize about Jesus, Their hearts would cry forth, as Paul says in Romans 12 and verse 2, that here we are, use me, that I may serve you with all of my heart. That Jesus truly would be the King and Lord of our life. So Father, thank you for what you've shown us this morning. We bless Jesus, who came in the name of the Lord, at the house of God, to show that he is the light of the world. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Thank you for your time this morning. You're dismissed.